From the Samira Foundation, this is Demystifying NMO and Mod, where we bring together the world's foremost experts, the doctors dedicated to studying it, and the patients who live with it every day. With support from Genetech. Welcome back, everyone. As the Smire Foundation has grown internationally, we started to see the inequalities in care experienced by patients throughout the world. And before we can create positive change, we believe that we need to better understand the variables that are in play and how they impact a patient's everyday life. Now, as NMO and MOG patients, caregivers, and clinicians, we all understand the challenges of getting a diagnosis and accessing our treatments. But think what it would be like navigating those same challenges, but in the aftermath of a natural disaster like the fires in Lahaina. Or how do you find answers when facing structural challenges in the healthcare system? Maybe there are clinicians who don't know how to recognize immunological diseases, let alone have the diagnostics and appropriate treatments. How do you get care when living in a conflict zone like the Ukraine? How do you maintain the continuity of care when you're forced to flee your home or your healthcare system has been decimated and collapses and your medical records are gone? This is the reality for far too many people. In 2022, the UN estimated that more than 2 billion people live in a conflict zone and 84 million people were forcibly displaced. Now in 2023, 110 million people were displaced and that number is expected to balloon to more than 130 million people by the end of 2024. Now to give you a sense of those numbers of the displaced people, it would be the equivalent of the combined population of California, Texas, Florida, New York, Pennsylvania, and Colorado. The numbers are just staggering. So today we welcome back a guest from season three, Dr. Farah Mateen. In episode 26, she joined us to talk about socioeconomic impact of NMO. And today we're going to look at another aspect of her work, global health, humanitarian, natural disasters, and social determinants of health. I don't think you can have a discussion about the state of NMO and MOG throughout the world without Dr. Mateen. She has spent more than a decade studying neurocritical care in developing countries, and she brings incredible insight into a very complex issue. She's published a series of articles on the topics, and the most recent papers shed light on the unique medical challenges of those who are forcibly displaced, and also considerations for addressing the existing gaps in care. So without further ado, Dr. Farah Mateen. So welcome back. I'm excited that you could come back and talk more about your work. For anyone who missed out on the first episode we did, which was from season three, first, they should be ashamed of themselves. And second of all, they should go back and listen to it. We had talked about the impact of NMO on employment and financial burdens that come along with it. But today we're going to be talking about NMO and MOG throughout the world, specifically in developing countries and global inequities. So your work focuses a lot on the social determinants of health. What led you down that path? Uh, well, hi, Brian. First of all, thanks so much for having me today and for covering this um, topic. So um, I've always been interested in vulnerable populations or um, the folks who aren't really part of the mainstream clinical trials or the literature, and I have a PhD in public health. Um, but I did that after my neurology residency. So I always wanted to do global work or work with um, marginalized or vulnerable populations. But I, originally, I was told that that wasn't really a part of neurology or that that wasn't a way I could focus my career. And I really loved neurology and I really loved um, public health and those sorts of problems as well. And so I was able to thankfully start thinking about those in, in synergies or in intersections. 
Um, NMO is even more complicated in the sense that it's a rare disease, as you know well, and trying to figure out what is the public health impact of a rare disease. And then in countries where NMO may not be even well recognized um, is a different challenge altogether. That, that's really interesting, looking beyond specifically just the disease and looking at you know the multifactorial nature of, of neurological conditions in and of itself and how they feed into things. In your most recent article, Rectifying Global Inequities in Neuromyelitis Optica Diagnosis and Treatment, could you just give us like a brief overview of some of the key challenges and the unique considerations with providing neurological care in such resource-limited settings? Well, this was an article it's really a, a personal commentary based on my many years of traveling in different um, low and middle income countries working with collaborators in those countries sometimes neurologists sometimes psychiatrists sometimes frontline healthcare workers who are not mds um, might be um, you know traditional healers or nurses or people who are encountering neurological patients and I've traveled to many countries um, thanks to my PhD in international health and then really my career focus on faculty here at Mass General for the last 10 years and I wanted to synthesize some of my experiences and um, you know not not least of which was talking directly to patients and trying to figure out why are people in the situations they're in and then also being situated in the United States in an academic medical center and seeing the, you know, the great privilege um, that it is to see the new advances and the new disease modifying therapies and NMO and also appreciate the complexities of getting them and the costs of them and to think about how widely inequitable the world can be for specific diseases. And uh, in public health, you know, we've had a lot of experience with other diseases that are you know, much more common, like HIV or even um, stroke. Um, but then to think about NMO as, as almost like it's not, of course, cancer, but in, in some ways um, it has a, a model that's similar. It's a chronic disease. Um, and if it's not treated, it can be deadly in some patients, not everybody, of course, but um, there have been really great NGO and um, multilateral initiatives to start thinking about how do we access um, potentially life-saving and life-changing treatments for patients who can't get them. And um, there have been examples and other diseases that could be could be used and could be um, that experience could be used for NMO. So um, I wanted to start thinking about how is it possible in many countries in the world, people don't even know they have NMO. Um, they may be blind or may not be able to walk and and they have no idea why, you know, they may be getting the wrong treatment or maybe getting no treatment in many cases. And then the other side of the world, we've got treatments that are upwards of, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars and trying to reconcile where we are in the world today. And it, if there was no treatments or advances, it, in some ways there would be more equity, but that's not great either if everybody's not getting anything. Um, so how do we, you know, sort of reconcile this great news that we have, good science, and then also make sure that science can reach some of the people who really need it? You had said that a tipping point, tipping a disease from potentially deadly to chronic survivable condition is possible. And that wasn't that wasn't a perspective that I had looked at before. And then really thinking about it, it, it kind of hit a little bit hard to think that, you know, without treatment, without access to treatment and diagnosis, a proper diagnosis and timely diagnosis really changes the, the long-term outcomes 
elaborating on that a little bit more, you talked about the need for um, access to testing and improved diagnostic accuracy. Can you talk a little bit more about the diagnostic challenges in situations like that? Yeah, I mean, actually, this stems from way back in 2015 slash 2016, when I was in Sudan, in Khartoum, at an African training course. And I was representing, at the time, the AAN, the American Academy of Neurology, but it was a course run mostly through the Europeans. and uh, But it was involving African neurologists in training from um, approximately 20 countries. And we surveyed them and we said, what is like a test that you most want that you can't get? And this is mostly Sub-Saharan Africa. And, you know, I was thinking we'd hear, you know, MRI or, you know, something that, you know, sort of, you know, what I would have, that's what I would have guessed. But actually what we heard was aquaporin for antibody. And I don't know why um, that was the consensus or the highest, you know, response, but it certainly was. And it was eye-opening to me to think, well, this is actually, you know, easily achievable compared to some of the more expensive tests we do. And it's interesting to me that people are really thinking about this and can't get it. And um, as you know, the aquaporin-4 antibody hasn't been around for, well, it's been around for a long time, but we only figured it out um, um, you know, as, as a field um, about 20 years ago now, thanks to, you know, Dr. Lennon and the Mayo team. Um, and I was lucky enough to have my residency at Mayo in, in the mid 2000s. And um, it just, you know, it was easy for us to get at that time to test and think about. We were, you know, in the sort of the area where a lot of discussions and early work was going on. And then there was all these folks who really wanted to know, is it NMO? is it, you know, is it MS? If you don't have spinal cord imaging, if you don't have the antibody, it's a bit of a guess. And um, I work a lot in West Africa in the Republic of Guinea, um, where I um, I see a lot of folks and I'm really it's a real privilege to, to be there. Um, and I was, neurology is on the second floor, um, which it often is in many hospitals, but there's no elevator. So I was going into work one day and I saw four people carrying this one young man up the stairs. And I was like, oh, I wonder where he's going. And then I realized he's coming into my office, even though we were doing epilepsy clinic that day. And he had paralysis. He couldn't walk. There's no elevator. There's no wheelchair. So you have to get carried around. And he came to my office and I thought, I wonder if this young man has NMO. And I couldn't answer the question, actually. I thought, well, clinically, he looks like it, but I can't do the test. And um, then it's like, what do you do? Do you treat or do you try to get more tests or, you know, how can you even, even coming from a, a wealthy institution, how can I even make the resources work for this, this man? Um, and, um, actually it turns out in Guinea, we don't have access to, um, even the usual disease modifying therapies that are used off label in the U S so, um, to get rituximab is a challenge. Um, to get mycophenolate or azathioprine, which are still not my preferred cho choices um, for a DMT. Um, I couldn't get those. Um, you could get a little bit of steroids, but we all know those are, I think, as we heard from some of the patients in my, some of my prior studies, those are the devil, <laughs> um, according to some of my my patients. Right. And then, um, then they have cyclophosphamide. And then it's like, wow, do you go all the way to cyclophosphamide without a diagnosis exactly? And what are the implications of that for patients? And um, 
what are the costs and you know how do you how do you get to the diagnosis in a you know meaningful way and so that's led to some other work that I've had the um, luck to do with different collaborators um, both at Mass General with uh, Michael Levy's lab and um, also now working with the Mayo Clinic's lab on aquaporin 4 trying to think about how can we do point of care aquaporin 4 testing and shouldn't that be you know, easy enough that we can start thinking about this um, as a as a solution for people at least to get to the diagnosis so we can make informed decisions. As you probably know, there are three drugs now on the essential medicines list, uh, which is the World Health Organization sort of recipe of drugs that should be available. And it's, you know, it's listened to by many ministries of health. There are three drugs on the, on the list now for MS. Um, so one of them is ocalizumab, and then the other one's glutaramer acetate, and the other one is um, cladribine. So those are not NMO treatments, of course, but at least neuroimmunology is coming up and it's getting advocated for. And so, um, you know, it's not a guarantee if you have NMO, you can even get the right treatment, but at least we can start figuring out who has it. We don't even know the fundamental epidemiology in many places. You had mentioned the importance of developing uh, some best practices and some guidelines. So would those be specific in context to country or region? How would you go about developing something like that when there are so many variables? Yeah, no, I think that's um, an important consideration. So um, sometimes in the literature, we talk about low and middle income countries as though they're like one place, but the reality is that that's the majority of the world's population right there. You know, that's at least three quarters of it, not much more. And that's where most of the young people live too. So uh, we really have to think both globally about what are minimum standards and what are the humanitarian or basics we really must offer for patients with neurology in general, but and most specifically here. And then also, um, what's regionally important. So um, I know that um, South America and Central America have a um, variety of very established collaboratives and have done some work about what their um, state-of-the-art care is and um, even talking about regional differences within um, that geography. And, the, you know, they're very organized. Um, there are other parts of the world where there are still very few neurologists and um, they don't have time to focus on um, one disease or, um, you know, basically there are no equivalent, you know, subspecialty societies. So um, there is different work to be done there, even trying to figure out, you know, how do we access better imaging for these patients? How do we um, pay for the drugs if they're needed? Um, so there are very different levels of need, depending on which country is involved and even which patient is involved in a specific country, because we know that there's such a rising middle class in middle income countries. Um, you know, you, you can take a you know country that's traditionally called lower middle income, um, India would maybe an example or parts of Africa. And it's it depends who you are, not where you are, on what level of care um, and how much income you personally have, not how much income is in a country. So um, there's a lot of nuance um, in West Africa where I work. You know, sometimes people have funds to travel and they can go to a neighboring country or Europe, for example, or the U.S., and they can get the care that they, they need. But many times people can't. We don't really have 
you know, strategies across the board in many countries. So um, there's a lot of work to be done. There's not one size fits all. And um, I think foundations can be really good at setting minimum standards, um, trying to figure out who is being left behind or who can we help if we have charitable opportunities, where should they be directed? Um, so those sorts of things and like even consensus about what is the minimum for NMO care um, because it is still, you know, a r rare disease and there is still um, sort of debate on some of the best practices that, you know, we should figure out what do we need to offer folks. And I think there's a lot of interest in the field now um, through foundations and um, and even through pharmaceuticals and through um, through academics and students, I might add as well, trying to figure out how do we help. Um, and so I think there's some work that can be done in terms of consensus building, um, bringing people together in terms of guidelines and uh, even just knowing what is happening. I think it's very unclear uh, often what is the state of NMO care in many places. Um, unless right. there's a published paper um, or unless somebody's taken on the task of reporting, we really have no idea how many people have NMO. In fact, even in this country, the epidemiology of NMO is not confirmed. There's, there's some estimates, but uh, so we shouldn't expect from poorer countries what we can't do ourselves either. No, excellent point. And I think your point about foundations and the work and the, the role that they can play is, is a really excellent one. I know from, from my experience, it seems like the foundations are doing a lot of work from the ground up. We're being contacted with by patients and, and family members of, of patients who are like, you know, hey, my family member has this. Do you think it could be NMO or MOG, so on and so forth? And it starts that discussion. And, and so raising awareness through that means seems to be at least a start in getting resources into the hands of, of clinicians out there who may not be aware of, of the disease, which kind of leads me to, to the next question about education. Access to specialized training and expertise is, is a concern in everywhere, but especially in resource-limited settings. How can healthcare professionals in, in these regions be better equipped to handle cases like this? And, and what role does education play in addressing those challenges? It's kind of hard to say because it's one of those, you know, you don't know what you don't know scenarios, but how can we go about trying to address some of those issues? I have a few thoughts on it. One is that there are some countries um, where there are NMO clinics that have hundreds of patients and those neurologists know so much about NMO more than most, you know, American neuroimmunologists because the volume is so high in specific countries where they've collected patients into specific clinics and we learn a lot from those those practices and I've met physicians in um, Mexico or China and the number of NMO patients that they have is so much higher than our practices um, so I think you know they have a lot that we can learn from in high-income countries I just you know start with that so I think that um, there's like reciprocal learning um, that could occur in many countries. Um, there may be more NMO in certain places and NMO we assume is the same everywhere and that's probably the case, but it would be good to know. We don't really know what causes NMO. So, um, you know, some of the things in the MS literature where we've done global epidemiology, we've learned, you know, vitamin D, latitudinal gradients, that kind of thing. Um, and in NMO, I think we still have all those basics to still figure out. Um, 
in terms of you know education there's like a lot of interest I think whenever I go to different countries about learning about NML but there aren't so many opportunities and so I think there's starting to be discussions can you know can NMO days occur those have happened um, to some extent but they don't happen in a regular basis I think COVID sometimes shut some things down that we're building um, so I think that there's still a lot more to be done in terms of adding on to professional society events um, in the United States we have you know, around the academic meetings, there's like a resident um, engagement organization or summits is what Actrams calls it. So, you know, we have the opportunity in other countries as well to do the same um, and to figure out how that's going to happen, I think is sometimes the challenge, but I think there is real interest. And as you know, we're separating out MOG, Aquaporin 4, um, there's been seronegative group, and there's also, you know, other things like ADAM and other autoantibody diseases, and those are really exciting parts of neurology if you're a practitioner, because it's new and we have options, and that's, I think, why people go into um, some of these fields is because it's such a you know, exciting and new and advancing area, and we have things to offer patients, and so um, there's there's there is a real interest i think in trying to figure out are we offering the state of the art care and even if you don't have it in front of you today doesn't mean that you won't get it and it won't come and so it's always good to be ahead right. of that learning curve we've seen a rapid expansion of healthcare technology do you think things like digital health and telemedicine are realistic avenues that could help bridge some of these gaps in education and just access to care and diagnostics? Yeah, no, I think there's a lot of partnerships around the world that are still um, very fertile ground for telemedicine and for other um, digital health initiatives. Um, you know, there's online uh, lectures via Zoom that they you know those have become normal now, whereas before those it would have been extraordinary. And um, telemedicine generally is a very good option. I think sometimes we're overregulated. You know, physicians are licensed by state or country, and um, yeah. there's all sorts of you know bureaucracies. But in terms of like the disease and the interest and the you know the relationships between neurologists, there's a, a huge amount of. Um, willingness and desire to work together um, and there have been different platforms that I've been involved in uh, sometimes it's a what they call asynchronous so a doctor somewhere may not, may not be a neurologist will put a case onto a, a platform maybe in a humanitarian emergency and say like you know we we think it's this we made this plan is this appropriate and then neurologists can answer within a day or two um, and then provide the best available advice that they can, um, but then the person in the country is still making the decisions. So those are ways that like you can have like specialist involvement, um, but not in real time. And then there are also, you know, just informal interactions between neurologists all the time. Um, one thing that we didn't talk about yet, which I think might be relevant is how common it is now for uh, pharmaceutical trials to recruit outside of high-income countries. And so we've seen because NMO is rare and because the prevalence is probably higher in other countries, we're seeing often predominant enrollment in middle-income countries outside of the U.S. and low-income countries as well. 
and trying to think about, well, these are the folks who are enrolling in our sort of grade, you know, class one level um, data generation. So they probably do know a ton about NMO and like um, they have a lot of trials experience now too for NMO. So how do we, how do we marshal all that and, um, and think about, well, um, we're learning from these trials, we're learning from these sites. Um, often there's more than 10 sites that it takes to enroll in one RCT, phase three RCT. So, um, so there is a global network already in place, um, even if it wasn't meant to be built as a network, it was through a clinical trial, but uh, other fields like cardiology, for example, have had global trials and then they get global networks as a result. And you learn a lot even through secondary analyses. Um, so I think there is a future in that as well, but I would just say, you know, we are very dependent on global work now in NMO just because of the small sample size that we have in any one location. I was actually going to mention that because you had talked about um, generating evidence on treatment choices and the importance of clinical trials. And so it's interesting to see that working kind of the, from a global perspective in terms of recruitment, it's obviously going to provide a diversity of, of patient sampling and definitely pay dividends in, in multiple ways. So are there any specific models or initiatives that are promising that we can adapt? You mentioned cardiology, that we can adapt to the work in, in learning more about NMO and, and making sure that uh, people are able to access care? Yeah, no, I think there's a ton that could be done. And um, I would say, so, you know, when I wanted to do NMO and global health, everyone's like, how are you going to do that? Or how do you make that happen? And if I would have gone to, you know, NIH or traditional funding body, I don't think they would have been able to, or, you know, that wouldn't be very traditional for them to fund foundational work. So, I really want to emphasize that foundations have a major role to play here. So many years back now, I asked the Meyer Foundation if they'd be interested in a global atlas on NMO, which many diseases have. And it was a bit of a flyer, you know, it seemed like a good idea, but who is really going to put their weight behind it? And the Meyer Foundation said, well, you know, basically we'll give this a try. And I really appreciated that because until that time, we didn't really know who even has access to aquaporin-4 antibody, who has access to MOG, who has access to OCT, et cetera, et cetera. So um, it was not work that was going to get done through a traditional agency or even through, I think, traditional researchers. <laughs> um, so um, I was very lucky that, you know, that somebody was interested other than me in this topic. And and I think that foundations do have that seed funding, that flexibility, the imagination, the insight, the patient voice, all of those come together in this really good soup of, you know, creativity and risk-taking that others wouldn't. And, um, and then after somebody takes a lead on those things, other people join in because they're like, oh, that's not such a bad idea after all. And, and, you know, other things have come along that way too, like patient reported outcome, reported outcomes and, and just how do we, um, how do we incorporate all the stakeholders? Um, so that, that's one model um, that I think has, has certainly helped 
me as a neurologist interest in this topic and I think some of my colleagues uh, you know hear be heard on on some of the access and availability issues um I, you know other things that I would say that have worked in other fields they may have um, more funding actually in other fields so we know that neuroscience on the global health level is underfunded so things that are well-funded, we more infectious disease or maternal child health. And of course, those are extremely important. But in terms of the burden of disease that neurological disorders have, we're very underfunded and it hasn't been a traditional kind of area for people to go into. Um, so we can learn from other fields that have a more sort of robust global health presence. And um, CML was the one um, disease, like chronic myeloid leukemia, uh, is the disease that I mentioned in the paper and uh, has come up in past discussions. And what that is, it's it's a malignancy, but it's a, you know, it's comes from a genetic translocation on a certain chromosome. And that was described, you know, years and years ago now, but they just discovered a targeted treatment. It turned out it was an expensive treatment and it was being used, it was successful. And then lo and behold, many countries and patients in many countries couldn't get it. And then this was really, um, I, my understanding, I listened to this lecture, this one woman who I think had a family member who had CML and she's like, well, we have to do more. And um, I went to a lecture that she had given and she showed the photos of all the people, who, people whose lives were saved by getting Gleevec, which was the drug name. And it was just all over the world, this person, that person, that person, this country, and this is what they're doing now. And they're living a, you know, a normal and sort of usual life. And they're, you would never know that they had CML. And I was like, well, isn't this like miraculous? This was, you know, the science took it so far, but this single woman saw the need and took it that much further. And um, I think Enmo was poised to take that same sort of leap in terms of implementation. Um, just like that drug was. And so what could have been a really, you know, life threatening disease um, became treatable. And here we are in the same model um, and, and potentially could execute. So I think that would be really exciting to see that level of implementation and sort of life-changing type of work. So I'm hopeful that NMO will follow um, that kind of model um, there are other models too, of course, they usually are, you know, there's a lot of discussion in global health about do you make horizontal um, inputs, i.e. build up the primary healthcare system or sort of the rising tide that lifts all boats, do you kind of bring everything up to a certain level, or do you do vertical programs, which are disease specific programs that are helping people with a specific diagnosis. Um, in neurology, the most famous uh, vertical program is for polio. And polio is totally different other than it does cause paralysis too. Um, and But it's, you know, we know it's from a virus and it's been a multi-billion dollar initiative. Many famous people have taken that on, including Bill Gates himself. And, you know, thankfully have made enormous progress. Um, but that's a vertical disease um, program. So they really wanted to eradicate polio. So, you know, there's a little bit of discussion, like how do you, how do you influence neurological care? Do you build up the, the bottom in terms of, um, you know, making sure everyone with 
myelitis or optic neuritis gets gets a diagnosis or gets some treatment? Or do you just say, I want to eliminate certain outcomes from NMO? The latter has been more traditional and may make sense for rare diseases, but also needs a champion. So those are some of the issues. Definitely some opportunities for some interdisciplinary collaboration there. Yeah. In the paper you were talking about, um, ensuring continuity of NMO care. This made me think about the work you had done with forcibly displaced persons, and it was talking about being able to maintain documentation and continuity of care. But you had mentioned North-South and South-South regional networks. Yeah, so um, I guess to answer the question, North-South would be, you know, for example, you know, Norway collaborating with Uganda, you know, so somewhere that's like the global north is often considered to be the wealthier, higher income group, Japan or Canada or, you know, Europe, Australia counts too, and they're not technically north, Um, but that, that model, so that model working with a resource limited or lower income kind of um, strata country. Um, The South-South is different thinking, you know, it's like, um, you know, would a neurologist in Peru collaborate with a neurologist in in Guinea? And, uh, you know, there may be benefits to both levels of partnership. So, uh, you know, for example, if I teach my colleagues in West Africa about eculizumab, is that useful information to them? Sort of, yeah. You know, they're understanding the biology and maybe they'll get that form of medicine one day or maybe they'll have patients who come and go and get that drug. But then there are also like challenges that are shared across resource-limited settings or um, different practices that may be really appropriate in two locations that can learn from each other that are have nothing to do with high-income countries. Um, maybe the way of training is the same or the language is the same or... Um, just the like healthcare system is structured in a certain way that's, you know, rational and it's shared in two countries. You know, the U.S. system is basically impossible to replicate, thankfully, anywhere else. And so it's a very complicated healthcare environment. And it's not necessarily the case that we should be teaching the whole world how to operate like us. Um, so just to be, you know, really honest, there may be things that other countries are doing much, much better. And um, to try and take that like level of imperialism out of it and to say that that we all have something to learn from each other and it doesn't necessarily have to involve a high-income country at all. Um, so that would be one thought. And then I think your first question, Brian, was... Ensuring continuity of care, and it made me think about the the forcibly displaced persons and record keeping and the important role that past medical history and medical documentation plays in making sure that a person can receive the, the most appropriate care. Yeah, so continuity of care is probably an unsung sort of um, part of medical practice. And, you know, we have the the good fortune of electronic medical records in our practice and many practices around the world. And that can be taken for granted, but it also can be taken advantage of. And so um, there's a lot of nuance in medical records in terms of um, people who are in a, in a country where they may not trust the government. They may not have any reason to trust their healthcare system. Um, they may be on the move themselves. Um, and a lot of folks may not be literate to know that they're getting like appropriate documentation or may not be able to read this sort of sprawl of their doctor or 
um, may not realize it's important to take that notebook with them if they have to to flee, for example. Um, and also just, you know, it's um, complicated to have neurological conditions. So a lot of people are already, you know, busy with that, never mind worrying about whether they have their paperwork with them. So um, it's really helpful, though, for the patient and for the person treating to know what's been tried and what what sort of infections have been, you know, occurred, have the vaccinations been up to date. Um, there's a lot to think about in terms of not just the disease modification, but also things like pain management and spasticity and um, those sorts of elements of uh, symptoms of NMO, and then also any comorbidities. And uh, having that information can be very helpful and time-saving so that, you know, past things aren't repeated if they're unhelpful. And um, if there is a serious, you know, infection history, obviously you would want to know that before making any big decisions. Um, and there may be things that the patient remembers that are not in the record and vice versa. So I think that it doesn't obviate a good interview, but um, it's something that, you know, has come up in the refugee literature a lot and, and forcible displacement. And when things, you know, natural disasters, when the medical record is wiped away, basically, or when you can't trust to have the medical record stored, because that means that, you know, people know something about you or your, you know, if you had a head trauma, or maybe you were in a, a fight or, you know, there's certain things that um, really people don't trust um, the, the, the system. And so trying to think about ways people can be owners of their own data and have that portability is really um, something people are thinking about as a field. Definitely so. I know reading through uh, your work on humanitarian emergencies and natural disasters and uh, the work on with forcibly displaced persons was a real eye-opener. I know how difficult it is to receive care for a rare disease in, in quote-unquote, a modern healthcare system. And we frame survival very differently than people in, in other parts of the world. And it was just, it was, a like I said, it was a real eye-opener to, to look at the different factors that were involved. It was it was excellent work, excellent perspectives. There are some themes there that can carry over and really bolster the way that we're doing things in general. Thanks, Brian. Yeah, no, I think that um, there's a lot that we can learn from vulnerable populations, and this has been an area of you know sensitivity. So we have these people who are in you know critical humanitarian circumstances, and you know should we be researching as well while we're you know, seeing these things happen and how can we learn how to provide the best neurological care um, when these humanitarian emergencies occur, because we know that they're not going to stop, unfortunately. So can't we get better at providing care? Um, and the other thing about humanitarian emergencies is they're lasting a long time now. So they're not, you know, a few days or a week. Some of them are going years we're seeing in Ukraine now, for example, or um, generations, as we're saying in the Middle East, or even right. Sub-Saharan Africa, where people are born in refugee camps, and some people die in refugee camps, and um, and just thinking about what models of care can we provide these these people, um, and so neurology hasn't traditionally been a part of programming for humanitarian emergencies. It's certainly not been prioritized. 
um, polio may have been or some vaccine preventable illnesses, even leprosy, if anybody remembers much about that. But those have been relatively successful programs. But how do we take that knowledge and transfer it to chronic disease and to um, to rare disease and to, you know, make that make that part of how we deliver, you know, modern day care. And a lot of people who are in humanitarian emergencies are young adults, um, children, and also increasing number of elderly. So it's a different population than some of these models have been developed for, you know, 20 years ago, 30 years ago. So there's more to learn um, in terms of even thinking about vision and spinal cord and, um, and then delivery in a continuous fashion. So it's easier to make donations when they're once, you know, for healthcare and parachute things in or, you know, have something drop off when you need to continue to provide care over time. Epilepsy is another great example of this. Like you can't just treat people once and walk away. You need to be able to continue that medicine. Otherwise you haven't solved the problem. So NMO is the same. You know, you can't make a one stop <laughs> and solve the problem. You've been studying neurological disorders in resource limited settings for well over a decade now. Where have you seen the most progress and are there any areas that are specifically lagging? Um, in terms of progress, I'd say like academically, you know, it's it's a job now. It's something that you can legitimately study and people have recognized it. It's a section of, you know, different academies and associations. And there's a lot of people who really want to learn about it. And I see it's very common for people who want to go into neurology now to want to do global health and neurology. So the field, partly due to the younger generation, but not exclusively, has has really developed. And it's it's not like a hobby. It's not just like, oh, you know, this is something you want to do on the side. It's a legitimate career. And that's really a good thing because there's a lot of work to be done. Um, and the literature is getting, you know, better. And um, you know, there's better quality data and we're getting better at working together just through things like the internet. And, um, and you know, basic development over time has advanced our field. Um, maybe not even neurology, but like the the technologies of it. Um, so that's been really cool. And point of care and better diagnostics are. You know, um, I'm part of a not related to NMO, but you know, I did early work on portable EEG using an app. And when I started that, everyone's like, "Oh, that's kind of crazy." <laughs> and now. Now, you know, the computing power has gotten to a certain point where it's not crazy. Um, so I think we can keep going in that direction around point of care and even patient-based um, diagnostics where people can diagnose themselves now. And I think AI is going to be really interesting. Um, maybe we can obviate some of the healthcare workers and leap over some of those shortages. In terms of work to be done, I think... You know, we still haven't solved basic problems about access and availability. And I know there's been a lot of, not a lot, but some interest. And there's been a new WHO um, resolution through the World Health Assembly on neurological disorders. But that was just, you know, a couple of years ago now. It's a 10-year plan. But I mentioned earlier that compared to their burden, neurological disorders have not received their due attention and funding and whenever there's a resolution, that's not necessarily a funded one. I'd say in terms of um, 
research support, we're still in a very old model, um, for example, through National Institutes of Health, where, you know, the, it's actually getting stricter on working across borders when it when we know that it makes more sense for science, especially to work together. Um, so a lot of the general trends around countries being more focused on themselves has not been progress. Um, and there's still many people in the world who don't know they have a neurological condition who aren't treated with basic medicines that have been around for even like decades. And um, that's really sad to watch. So I think we haven't done very good at like lobbying and like um, pounding the table and advocacy and just saying like, you know, these are important disorders and um, how do we like stop um, ignoring them? So um, yes, yeah, so I think that there's still a lot of work to be done um, in terms of disease states. Um, I think one of the challenges moving forward will be how do we maintain anything close to equity for um, for global health. So as the medications become more plentiful and often more expensive, that actually increases the challenge because there's actually more people are missing out on globally. Um, and so somebody has to, you know, think about the ethics of this as well. And there's not a huge priority or burden on drug developers. So it has to really go somewhere else. How do we, you know, some, some companies are taking on their own auspices to do a lot of charitable work and some don't. Um, and there have been like report cards online about which companies have given the most of the developing world. Um, and that's sort of helpful, but it's not neurology specific. Um, so I think even just reporting and clarity on what's going on is still <laughs> lacking. Um, and that would that would help. At least we could have accountability on what we're doing. But you know, we still don't have neurologists in every country in the world. <laughs> so that's that's gonna be a, a starting point. And um, I don't think we've done as well on like brain drain for neurology either. I think we still find that neurologists in low-income countries may be on their own and not getting the support they need and um it's not very fun to be you know, the only neurologist in the country it can be a real burnout or pressure for a lot of people so i think we don't support our field amongst ourselves as much as we could in the article you had mentioned some goals on how we can begin to address some of the issues you want to talk about those sure yeah so one of the things that i've been interested in doing later in my career now is not just describing the problem, but thinking about like, what can we actually do? And what are concrete um, measures that we could take to improve the situation? So um, it's recognized that there are issues, um, but like, how do we advance? And so I just listed nine goals that could be considered. These are you know my ideas. And um, I think, you know, I think that they're worth uh, considering. So I'll just list them for you. Um, the first is improving access to diagnostic testing and thinking about point of care testing in particular. And that way patients can even test themselves one day. Um, the second is advancing knowledge directly to patients and healthcare workers. So thinking about the model as um, going to healthcare workers, but patients as well. And 
the third is developing best practices and guidelines for low income settings. So we've been speaking broadly about low and middle income countries, but particularly in low income settings, uh, what do we do if we can't get an autoantibody or if we can't get a specific treatment? Um, you know, just to provide guidance, knowing there are places without resources, what's the best practice for those locations? Um, the fourth is generating evidence on treatment choices and dosing of affordable medicines. And so we know that rituximab is used widely for the treatment of NMOSD and to provide some elements of uh, dosing, timing, safety, and appropriateness. And also to think about if there are situations where you can't get rituximab and you can't get any of our available FDA uh, DMTs, what is the rational dosing for some of the alternatives, even if they're not superior? Um, number five is um, ensuring that every country has access to immunosuppressive agents on a consistent um, availability. And that may sound obvious, but it's certainly the case that many countries don't have consistent availability of immunosuppressives. And that is a very basic challenge, but I think, you know, certainly uh, surmountable. Number six is negotiating rational drug pricing in low-income countries. And actually the Clinton Foundation um, several years back now looked at um, drug pricing and negotiating drug pricing for antiretrovirals and other um, important antibiotics. And that really changed the field. And so I think we can also do that in neurology. Uh, number seven is establishing vertical programs for drug delivery. So um, this is where I mentioned Gleevec and uh, targeting uh, specific patients who really need access to disease-modifying therapies. Um, number eight is tracking disease incidents and outcomes to identify missed opportunities. So this is really a, a request for epidemiology and looking at practices and thinking about what is being done and what could be done that's sort of low-hanging fruit, if you will. And uh, number nine is ensuring continuity of NMO care and thinking about um, patients as you know, mobile and um, throughout their life course um, needing to get care, even if they need to move from their current setting and how to collaborate across locations. Um, that sounds like probably a lot to do, but they're just some sort of morsels of food for thought. I can appreciate the way that you constructed the goals, as I mentioned before. I think for a lot of us, we frame diagnoses, treatment, and long-term care in a very different manner than the majority of the world. So I think laying them out very specifically to at least start to have those conversations and then just those discussions and start moving towards looking at solving those problems is is very important. Reading through the the literature that your work has produced. And it provides a perspective that I don't think many of us really, really understand. It just it's it's important work, and and I'm glad that the discussions are happening, and I look forward to see where it goes. Yeah, you know, no, thank you. Yeah, no, thank you for covering the topic. So, um, it's not a mainstream topic, and <laughs> it's not been a, a mainstream paper. So, um, but it's still, I think, um, it's really interesting to hear patient perspectives on this too and to you know there's a lot of folks out there who want to help but it, there's no blueprint on how to help so exactly. i think 
that's the challenge, you know, coming up with legitimate ways people who want to help can actually do it and not starting from just sort of, you know, you know, kind of ideas randomly, but also to have like needs-based assessments and having, you know, we, I didn't talk very much about cost effectiveness in this at all, but I think that's another piece of the puzzle. Like if you have X amount of money and, you know, you want to help, how does this, you know, play out? Right. And how, how much does it really cost to get to where we're going? So those things can be um, analyzed as well and still need a little bit more work, but that's probably um, the next step on that. But I, I, you know, I've never underestimated people's desire to help and to do, do good things for either other patients or patients that they're studying or patients that they're treating. And, but it's often unclear how to, how to execute, how do you make it actually happen? And so um, in neurology, we've been challenged not by a lack of interest, but by a lack of organization. And I think that that's slowly changing and could change faster. Um, that was, that's kind of the idea piece, but powerful organizations can take on the, the concreteness of it. I, I think as the Smire Foundation has grown globally, the work that, that you're doing, at least from my point of view, helps frame the work that we're doing. And I think dovetails very well with what our goals are and making sure that patients have access to diagnostics and long-term treatments and can live with a good quality of life you know, under very, very difficult circumstances. Yeah, that's right. You know, it just so happens that the Samire Foundation is based in Boston and, you know, 10 years ago and change, I took a job in Boston. And um, so that was really um, serendipity, really, that <laughs> this sort of global-minded foundation is right around the corner. Um, but um, not everyone has that. <laughs> that So, I, you know, thankfully, the Samara Foundation has reached many corners of the world now, many countries. It's only growing. And um, that's really exciting to see someone make this situation that could have stayed local, global. And we actually did a podcast, Samira and I, recently for neurology for the Without Borders section, where, oh, cool. I got, yeah, where I got to ask her, you know, why go global? What are we learning about global NMO? So I got to sort of um, ask her the questions <laughs> and see what she's had to say, because now she's seen NMO in many countries and right. has this very unique perspective. So, um, so different opinions coming up, but, um, you know, everybody has a choice whether to go global or not. And then Smire Foundation has, and, and thank heavens, because I think they're doing a lot of great work. Well, thank you again for taking time out of your busy schedule to chat with us. I always learn a lot and I always appreciate your perspective and, and the body of work that you're produced. So thank you so much. My pleasure. Thank you. Mm -hmm.